Rabbil Alameen wa salatu wa salamu ala Sayyidina wa Nabiyyina wa Habibi Qulubina wa Shafi'i Nufusina Abil Qasim al-Mustafa Muhammad wa ala Ahli Baytihi al-Tayyibin al-Tahirin Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad wa ajjil farajahum Sallallahu alayka ya Aba Abdillah We were discussing the events that one after another led to Ashura taking place 50 years after the Holy Prophet We have put behind us three or four of those events, those main uh, things that took place uh, that slowly led to power ending up in the hands of Bani Umayyah. These individuals, this clan that was problematic according to the Prophet, according to Amir al-Mu'minin we started with uh, the appointment or the, cho- the choosing of the first Khalifa in Saqifa and how that meant that power didn't end up in the hands of the one it should have ended up in. Was this something uh, deliberate for Ashura to happen 50 years later? Not necessarily. At least, at least we can say that we believe that it was a mistake that the Muslim Ummah made or those close companions of the Holy Prophet made. This was the first event. And if that was something that happened all of a sudden, then at least the second Khalifa's appointment shouldn't have happened the way it did. The logic that was used for the first Khalifa being chosen was that we had no choice. It was something that happened all of a sudden. The Ansar were going to take power, and uh, we had to make somebody of the Quraysh that was in that gathering Khalifa. One of the three Qurayshis that were there, one of the three Muhajireen that were there, Abu Ubaidah al-Jarrah, Umar ibn al-Khattab, and Abu Bakr. And so what ended up happening was that Abu Bakr became the first Khalifa. That logic is applicable to the second Khalifa being chosen. But although it's applicable, it was not applied. And so the second one was appointed uh, without really consultation happening with the Muslim Ummah with the Mu'mineen and Muslimin, and of course the Grand Sahaba of Rasulullah Sallallahu We went through all of that. We even discussed some of the accounts that, that say that no, it did happen and consultation did happen. And those were dismissed because we didn't have a strong account for them. Um, those who haven't seen that lecture, it would be good if they watch that for this purpose. That same logic now also is applicable to the third Khalifa being chosen. And that is what we will be discussing in today's lecture is the third Khalifa, how he was chosen and how this plays a role in things happening against the will of the Holy Prophet and Bani Umayyah coming to power. This, the third Khalifa coming to power, as a matter of fact, is one of the major turning points of Islamic history, according to the Shi'i school of thought, where things changed all of a sudden and started going downhill very rapidly afterwards. How did the third Khalifa come to power? Well, if the first Khalifa, the logic behind him being appointed was that it, there was no choice, and that uh, if he wasn't chosen all of a sudden on the spot, that problems would have arisen, then the third Khalifa also, when he was chosen, the Mu'mineen, the Muslimin, the Muslim Ummah had 10 years with the second Khalifa, had time to think over things. 
and the second Khalifa had time to think over things as well as to who and how to choose the one to succeed him. But once again we find that when the second Khalifa is on his deathbed, some reports say uh, that he had said that, well, I can do either or. I don't have to necessarily appoint someone after me because that's what the Holy Prophet did He didn't appoint somebody after him. Or I can uh, go and follow the sunnah of the first Khalifa who appointed someone after him. When did he say this in the reports that share this with us? He said this when people were coming to him. Now some say it was his son, uh, Abdullah bin Umar. Some say it was Aisha, some say it was Hafsa, his daughter. Anyway, or maybe it could have been all of them on different occasions. They came to him, they said, don't leave the people without a shepherd. But it seems that based on those reports that for himself, there was this thing going on within him of who am I supposed to appoint? But when we look at how things went on, we find that no, it, sh it, it seems that he did have somebody in mind. So what happens is that he puts together a, a six-person council. And this is a common knowledge. Everyone knows these details. I don't want to, as I said in, in uh, the first nights uh, that we had programs, um, as I said there, we're not after going through all the details of these events. We're trying to just uh, connect some dots and point out certain observations and notes that the Shi'i school will have regarding these events, each and every one of them. Or else the details of these uh, events, um, they're in the history books and they're also, there's a, there, there are many lectures, both Sunni speakers and Shi'i speakers have spoken about all those details. Of course, there's different narratives and each, each uh, school of thought will have its own narrative as well. But anyway, so he summons six companions. And now some reports, they say that he, with a frown, he tells these six, I know each and every one of you wants to be Khalifa after me. You, you would like to be Khalifa. Um, and then he goes through the faults, the good and the bad of each one of these individuals. When he gets to Ali ibn Abi Talib, he says that Ali, now one report says, he says, Ali, you are too humorous. You have a sense of humor too much and you kid around too much. That's your flaw. Another report says that he said this in addition to the fact that Ali, you are, you are after Khilafah too much. It's too important for you. That's another report. And of course, the, if this is a true report, the Shi'i school will of course explain and, uh, will, and their understanding of this will be that yes, Ali is very particular about the Khilafah because he knows that that is something that he has to take on. And he's the one who the Prophet appointed uh, after him. So if he's going to be pushing for it, it's because this is something that is part of Islam that he's pushing for. But anyway, um, it seems according to this report that the second Khalifa is remembering how Ali ibn Abi Talib, especially in the beginning, uh, didn't give bay'ah um, and uh, was rejecting the first Khalifa when the first Khalifa came to power. So there are different reports here. You didn't, uh, you, you, you kid too much or you kid too much, plus you're after Khilafah too much. But at the end of the day, you, O Ali, according to that report, the second Khalifa tells him, you Ali, if the people have you as their Khalifa, he will, you will lead the people to the truth and the straight path. He says that about Ali as well, salam. Who are these six people now? These six people were some of the greatest, biggest names of the Sahaba. 
Yes, we have Sa'ad bin Abi Al-Waqqas. We have uh, Abdul Rahman bin Auf. And we have Talha, we have Zubair, we have Ali, السلام, we have Uthman. These six individuals have to choose someone from amongst themselves. Okay. Now here we find a little bit of tribalism still there. And we'll get to Nahj al-Balagha, what Amir al-Mu'mineen says about this council in Nahj al-Balagha. But we find a little traces of that tribalism still there. So out of these six, there are some, our historians say, there are some who felt like, no, they're not going to be able to you know, become Khalifa when there's someone like Uthman there or someone like Ali uh, as a candidate. And so they stepped back and they withdrew from this, uh, from these, uh, this kind of, I don't want to say race for Khilafa, but you know, th this decision that was going to be made for the Khalifa, to, for who the Khalifa is going to be. So they say Talha, he withdrew in favor of whom? Uthman. Why? They'll explain that uh, Uthman uh, was from Bani Umayyah, of course, and Talha knows that Uthman and Ali, they're not going to be really close to each other too much. Talha is from the same tribe as, um, as Abu Bakr, Bani Taym. And so Talha knows that Ali had problems with Abu Bakr when he became Khalifa, right? And so this is, there's a little bit of darkness here, a little bit of bitterness between the two. And so he knows that the, the opposite of Ali will probably be Uthman. So he uh, steps aside in favor of Uthman. So now Uthman has two votes, his own vote and Talha's vote. Um, and here, of course, these explanations that I'm giving brothers and sisters, these are the, uh, the views and opinions of Shia historians and some Sunni historians. But once again, as I've said again and again, we cannot expect to expect everyone to look at it in this way. No. This is how the Shi'i historians and scholars and some Sunni historians and scholars uh, might see it. Of, of course the Sunni ones might not be the mainstream ones now and that might, might not be the majority. They might be for example a person like Ibn Abil Hadid and the likes of him which of course they're not seen as, as scholars to follow in the Sunni school. They're not mainstream anymore at least. Um, the Mu'tazilites. Anyway um, so Talha, it says that he withdrew in favor of Uthman. Zubayr withdrew in favor of Ali because they're cousins. They're cousins. And so this also, you see, although Zubayr is going aside for Ali, but the reason for it, they say, was that they were cousins. This is, once again, a little bit of tribalism, it seems. This is not the right reason to withdraw in favor of Ali. But at the end of the day, he withdrew in favor of Ali. And... Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas, he withdraws for Abdul Rahman bin Auf because they're also from the same tribe, it says. Bani Zuhra. Alright. So having said all of that, and also it's interesting how, I didn't know this myself, that there was a, um, that, that there was that brotherhood pact that the Holy Prophet made with different people in Medina when he arrived in Medina. Abu Bakr and Umar were they were named brothers through the pact. Um, and uh, the Holy Prophet and Ali, they are also, they had a pact of brotherhood between them. Talha, or excuse me, Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas and Abdul Rahman bin Auf, also they say had this brotherhood pact between them. So this is also a reason why uh, Sa'ad bin Abi Waqqas would withdraw in favor of Abdul Rahman bin Auf. So we're left with three candidates now. 
Ali, Uthman, and uh, Abdul Rahman bin Auf. All right. So now, Abdul Rahman bin Auf, he apparently isn't too interested either, or for whatever reason, he says, "I am going to also withdraw." In other words, he's the one who's going to tip the scales in favor of whoever's left of the candidates, which is Uthman and Ali alayhi salam. And so here, there are some reports, there are, there are different reports here as well. What I've found, some of our uh, historians narrate to us, of course, based on, his, his, on, on sources of history, um, that Abdul Rahman bin Auf asks Ali ibn Abi Talib first, he says, do you want me to withdraw in your favor and uh, thus making you Khalifa? If you promise that you will follow Kitab Allah and Sunnah Nabiullah, that you will follow the Sunnah of the Holy Prophet, the Book of God, and Sunnah Shaykhain, the Sunnah of the first two Khalifas. And here, of course, Ali ibn Abi Talib, there are different reports here what he answers. But in the end, they all, um, the common uh, theme. In, in these reports is that Ali alayhi salam, he says, Kitab Allah and Sunnah Rasulullah, but the rest, I'm sorry, I'm not going to. Now, he, there's different wordings that have been used here. Anyway, so he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And so Abdul Rahman bin Auf turns to Uthman and says, Uthman, what about you? Do you promise such? And Uthman says, yes, I do. And so there they say that Abdul Rahman bin Auf puts his hand on or in the hand of Uthman and gives him bay'ah. And so here, uh, the Khalifa of the Muslimin, the third Khalifa, is chosen. Yes. Now, before I go on, I do have some notes in the end that I want to share and some questions and observations. But right here, before I forget, I will have to bring up the same logic that we had before. The same logic that we had before was uh, that in uh, Sahih al-Bukhari, um, narrated in that long hadith or that long riwayah, we had that when the second Khalifa explains that the, uh, that the appointment of Abu Bakr was a falta and happened all of a sudden, he says, look, you're not supposed to choose someone, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, you're not supposed to choose someone without consulting the Muslimin. It doesn't even say grand sahaba here. It says Muslimin. And so here, once again, we find that this logic was not followed. Yes, that if Abu Bakr was chosen without consultation, it was because there wasn't enough time. But here there's enough time. Yeah, you have time. You can ask the people to give their opinions. Now some will say that Abdul Rahman bin Auf, when he saw that everything is on him, and he's the one who's going to tip the scales, he said, give me a few days to think about it. And then he started asking the opinion of a lot of people, as well, what they think. And then he came up with the name of Uthman. As I said, there are different reports here in this regard. But once again, what's for sure is that the Muslimin in general were not uh, consulted on this. Um, but yes, as I've said before, there will be answers that will go back and forth. Some will say, no, Abdul Rahman in three days, he consulted everyone he could and made that final decision. But the answer to that is, well, why does Abdul Rahman bin Auf have to be the one? who will make the final decision based on the ones he spoke to. What if his discretion on who to speak to and whose opinion to get, yes, is kind of biased or he's mistaken or he doesn't uh, you know, speak to as many people as he should. 
that represent different ideologies and different opinion, political opinions of the people that he's speaking that, that, are, that are in Medina, for example. Anyway, as I've said before, the, these back and forths are going to always be there. But let's see what uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib believes in Nahj al-Balagha, how he sees uh, this uh, six-person council. Because when you look at it from afar, it's very nice, you know. It's like, okay, you have a council of six of the best of the best, the cream of the crop, and you know, they're all up there and let's, uh, they're, they're going to decide on a person. Yeah, That's how it's usually seen. But in Nahj al-Balagha, this is not how things are seen by Ali ibn Abi Talib. In Sermon 73 or 74, based on the print, um, there's different versions and prints of Nahj al-Balagha, or different editions, let's say, not versions. When the bay'ah of Uthman was decided on, it says that Ali ibn Abi Talib said, salam, you have certainly known that I am the most rightful of all others for the Khilafah. So straight up he says it. It's not like there are six people, all of them are up there. And so, you know, uh, someone has to, you know, be, the, the, the scales have to be tipped in favor of someone a little bit. He says, look, everyone knows I'm the most rightful to all the other, of all the others for the Khilafah by Allah, so long as the affairs of the Muslims remain intact, they're taken care of. Okay, this is after the bay'ah happened for Uthman. As long as the affairs of Muslims remain intact and there is no oppression in it, except on me personally, I shall keep quiet, seeking reward for it from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Yeah, he says, look, you wrongfully chose someone else, okay? And I'm not okay with that. And I feel like my right has been trampled again. But as long as other rights are not trampled and the Muslimin are taken care of and I'm the only one who's being oppressed, it's fine, I'll be quiet. And I'll be seeking reward from Allah for this patience that I'm showing. And keeping aloof from its attractions, from the attractions of being Khalifa. And allurements for which you aspire. So if you've been chosen, it's fine. Yes, but he makes it clear that I'm the most rightful. In khutbah number three as well, he, he goes into more detail. And as I've said before, this khutbah, uh, there's difference of opinion on it. Is it a khutbah that was delivered to the public? Or no, it was Amir al-Mu'minin venting to uh, Ibn Abbas. I've heard uh, grand uh, scholars of history today, they believe that it was him speaking to Ibn Abbas and uh, about uh, the affairs of the Muslims and he was upset and that's why he was speaking to Ibn Abbas. Anyway, it says here in khutbah number three, whichever you take it as, if you take it as a, as a public sermon or a private uh, dis, uh, dis, uh, discussion and conversation that Ali salam had, it says, nevertheless, I remained patient. So we read part of this khutbah in our, in our in yesterday's speech where he's speaking about the second Khalifa being chosen. Here he speaks about the third Khalifa being chosen. He says, I remain patient despite length of period and stiffness of trial. Ten, ten plus years, ten years and I don't know, about nine months maybe, the second Khalifa was in power. I was patient. Till when he went his way and he passed away, he put the matter of Khilafah in a group and regarded me to be one of those, one of them. He put it in a group. He said, Khilafah is going to be amongst one of you, one of you amongst uh, this group. And one of the people in this group is going to be Khalifa. So he put it in a group like that. But good heavens, what had I to do with this consultation? In other words, this shura, this consultation, yes, is 
not really anything special. What me and this consultation, what do we have anything to do with each other? Where was any doubt about me with regard to the first of them, that I was now considered akin to these ones? This is a very big statement he makes. That the first Khalifa, there's, I had nothing less than him. And, you know, of course the Shia believed that he was higher than all of them. He says, there was no doubt about me with regard to the first of them, that I was now considered akin to these ones that are left in this six-person council. So how is it that you put me next to them? But I remained low when they were low and flew high when they flew high. I was careful. One of them turned against me because of his hatred. And the other got inclined the other way due to his in-law relationship. Um, yes. And this, so it's that tribalism that we were talking about. And this thing and that thing. There are other, there, they say there are other reasons as well that some of these people in the six-person council withdrew because of. Yeah, it wasn't just the tribalistic aspect. There was more to it as well. I don't, we don't have time to get into that. So yes, it says, Till the third man of these people stood up. Uthman meaning took khilafah. With him, his children of his grandfather, Umayyah. Yes, Umayyah, that was, he's, the Imam doesn't say the word Umayyah here, but he says the children of his grandfather, meaning his cousins um, from Bani Umayyah, also stood up, swallowing up Allah's wealth like a camel devouring the foliage of spring. Till his rope broke down, his actions finished him, and his gluttony brought him down to the ground. Okay, so Amir al-Mu'mineen is very upset here as well that this person now has become Khalifa. Brothers and sisters, we have a problem. And the problem is that the first two Khalifas came and went. Yes. Both of them were not from huge clans of Quraysh. Bani Taym and Bani Adi. These clans, uh, they're not huge clans. And so with the departure of a person like the first or the second Khalifa, you won't really have those names of these clans. You won't be seeing them too much anymore. But the difference with the third Khalifa is that he is straight up Banu Umayyah. True, he is not Banu Sufyan. True, he is not Banu Marwan. Yeah? But at the end of the day, he is Banu Umayyah. Banu Umayyah is a big clan. An influential one, a powerful one, a cunning one, a smart one, one that is, is capable of, you know, capable in the sense of, a, in a, in a, I'm looking at this word from a secular perspective of running things, being in charge of people. Abu Sufyan did it, yes, Muawiyah showed us that he can do it. And so, Banu Umayyah is revived through the appointment of Uthman, because Uthman was Banu Umayyah. And so with him coming to power, now we can say Banu Umayyah has come to power. But we still have a barrier. Because the Banu Umayyah that has come to power is not the Banu Umayyah of Bani Sufyan or Bani Marwan, it's Uthman. Yes, Bin Affan. And so still there isn't, you're not, you, you don't need to be too worried, but things are getting worrisome now. 
Because when someone comes from a clan, other relatives that he has that are abundant in number, they're going to slowly come in as well. At the end of the day, yes, this is my cousin, that's my cousin, this is my brother, this is my half-brother, and so on and so forth. These aren't people that he doesn't see every other day. He, he might be, he, they might be visiting each other all the time. They are kind of one, brothers and sisters. All right. So that is very, it's getting scarier and scarier now. If before we said that the haqq was taken away completely from Ali ibn Abi Talib, but it didn't go into the hands of Batil completely, it was now, it's not, it's in the middle now. It's not in, close to the haqq at least, it's not close to the, it's not close to the Batil, it's in the middle. It's making its way towards Batil through this channel of Banu Umayyah represented by the third Khalifa. Does the third Khalifa necessarily want to make sure that Batil happens? This is irrelevant right now to our discussion. It doesn't matter if things were deliberate or not. We're trying to point out how events one after another came together hand in hand. These dots are connected and Ashura takes place. How is it that Banu Umayyah and how is it that Yazid comes to power and takes over of the Banu Umayyah and eventually Ashura takes place? Well, it starts here. You see the name of Banu Umayyah here. Although we saw the name of Banu Umayyah yesterday as well, we were talking about Muawiyah being in charge of all the Shamat, the lands of Sham. Yeah, even there, there, was, there are major issues that the Shi'i school has and points out that a Banu Umayyah like him should not be in charge of such a strategic location being the Shamat. And yet that happened as well. So we see the name of Banu Umayyah there regarding relative power. But now absolute power is also in the hands of Banu Umayyah. So now, just a few notes that we need to discuss and a few observations here, maybe two or three or four maybe that we have. Number one, many, said, many have said that, uh, of, of contemporary historians even, have said that this six-person council, it was clear that it was going to yield Uthman as the Khalifa. Yes? And Ibn Abbas has even been narrated to have said this as well. And maybe others as well, that like we know that this is going to be, it's going to end up with Uthman being Khalifa. If this wasn't the case, brothers and sisters, that they did not want the third Khalifa, the way this six-person council was put together, if it is the case that the second Khalifa does not want Uthman to be elected, yes, if this is the case, then why did he keep it to six individuals? Brothers and sisters, this is something to think about. Why only six? Aren't there other great companions of Rasulullah What is still alive? Abu Dhar al-Ghifari, for example. Uh, in Musnad bin Hanbal it says, مَا أَذَلَّتِ الْخَضْرَاءِ وَلَا أَقَلَّتِ الْغَبْرَاءِ عَلَى ذِي لَهْجَةٍ أَصْطَقْ مِنْ أَبِي There's no one that the sky has been over and has been walked over by, uh, by a person more honest and truthful than Abu Dhar. Or Ammar bin Yasir, is he not alive? The one who in the beginning, the advent of Islam, lost his mother, his father, under the torture of the Quraysh. Yeah, and he, he, got, a lot, he got out alive after he did his taqiyya. Yeah, Ammar bin Yasir is no minor, second, third, fourth tier Sahabi. He is huge. Ammar bin Yasir, Abu Dhar, Mittad, Salman, all of these people, they're great individuals. Why not have them 
in the council as well. Unless there is an agenda. Yes? But then the question begs to be asked, what is the agenda then? Why would the second Khalifa want the third Khalifa to be uh, a person of Banu Umayyah? Want him to be, want it to be Uthman. Why? And the answer that has been given is an interesting one. Uh, this is also something to think about. That if there was going to be an agenda, it could have been this. That the second Khalifa wanted to keep a balance. If he saw that Muawiyah, I mean he wasn't giving Muawiyah trouble in the four years, of the, the last four years of his Khilafah, because although he could have, he wasn't. Why? Why is he allowing Bani Umayyah to become a little stronger? And here allowing Uthman to take over. Why is that the case? He wants to keep a balance, they've said. Some might say this. Keep a balance. He knows if Bani Hashim, who had the prophet and had prophethood, if they keep power here and have Khilafah also, Khilafah will not leave the hands of Bani Hashim after it has gone to them. And so he wants to keep a balance. What other name as big as Bani Hashim is out there? It is Banu Umayyah. And so let's at least, if prophethood was in Bani Hashim, let's keep Khilafah somewhere else that's also big, so that a balance is kept. Alright, now so some here will also say this, that um, no, he wanted, he looked, the second Khalifa looked and saw that out of the ten that have been promised paradise by the Holy Prophet, Al-Ashra, uh, Al-Mubashirin Bil-Jannah, these were the ones that were left, uh, except himself, of course. And so that's why he left it to them. Well, brothers and sisters, why didn't he make this clear? That's, another, that's the question that's, that's there. If he is going to, is, if he's going to put together a council like this, why doesn't he explain that this is the reason why I brought you all together? You are the six left of the uh, ten that have been granted and, and promised paradise. Nowhere do we, no, at least I haven't found anywhere. Yes, you will find speakers will say this. Maybe there's a hadith out there, I don't know. I don't know. I uh, haven't come across it. I didn't uh, go deep into it, but looking around, I didn't find anything that where he explicitly has said, people, the reason why I'm doing this is because these are the ones remaining of the ten that were promised paradise. Yes? All right. And it, she should explain this because according to some reports, Yes, if there were others who were feeling like they should be part of this council. A person like Amr bin al-As, as they call him, Dahiyatul Arab, the most clever, or one of the most clever, clever ones of the Arab. Yes, he, they say, some reports say that he wanted to get into that council as well. Or a person like Mughira bin Shu'bah, there are reports that say that he also wanted to be part of this as well. And so if this is the case, why not dismiss everybody and just say, people... If you're asking me why, this is why. This is the criteria. But even if that was the criteria, brothers and sisters, is this something that Rasulullah pointed out? Where does this sunnah even come from? Let us say that that was the criteria. If that was, where is it coming from? Um, we don't find the Prophet ever saying that if you want to choose a Khalifa, yes, one of these of the ten has to choose, or the ones who are ten of the ten granted paradise have to choose. Others, you also find, they'll say that they won't bring this up. They might bring something else up. They'll say that um, the reason was because these were the ones the Prophet was happy with when he passed away. Yes? But the question is, does that mean that a person like Salman is not, the Prophet is not happy with him when he's leaving this dunya? Or a person like Abu Dhar is not, the Prophet is not happy with him when he's leaving this dunya? Ammar bin Yasir, 
Ammar bin Yasir, the one the Prophet loved so much, is the Prophet's not happy with him? No, brothers and sisters, these don't, these cannot be the criteria. And so it goes back to there being an agenda once again. Some will say it's deliberate, some will say it was out of grudge, others will say other things, that's irrelevant right now. What we're talking about is this is that historical event that took place, that took power from other than Ali, but then not only placed it somewhere else, placed it in the hands of Banu Umayyah now. All right, so you've got Muawiyah in Sham. With all that power, now you have, but at the end of the day, it's a relative power. It's not ultimate, absolute power because there are still first-tier Sahaba alive. But when one of those takes over and he's of Banu Umayyah, then you have a problem, brothers and sisters. And this is that turning point. One of those turning points, the third Khalifa, his Khilafah, one, and his assassination, two, are maybe some of the most significant and greatest events of Islamic history that changed it forever. And we'll talk more about this in our next lecture about uh, the assassination of Uthman. Yes, and how the tables really, everything turned after the assassination of Uthman. Anyway, so that's one observation about what was the criteria. And if, and if th there was no criteria, how come there were no other Sahabis involved in this decision-making process? Another thing is that Umar ibn al-Khattab, according to some reports that I shared with you yesterday as well, he was aware that Muawiyah is a strong individual and that you can't get, you can't cause, you can't get into a fight with him, so to speak. You can't have problems with him. And so in reports it says that he told this six-person council, he let them know, he said, look, you all better decide because if you don't decide properly, there's division amongst you and the ummah and all that, Muawiyah is in Sham, just letting you know. In other words, he'll come and take power of over, he'll take over everything. So if you don't want that to happen, you have to figure things out amongst yourselves. Brothers and sisters, if it is true that this six-person council is going to yield Banu Umayyah, then he, if he's worried about that, he should have stopped it. He should have maybe even kept one of them out of this council and not let him be a candidate or somehow planned it in a way that it won't yield Banu Umayyah. You know Muawiyah has all that power in Sham, but then if you bring another Banu Umayyah to power as Khalifatul Muslimin, then everything is going to be out of control. And this is where that idea gets bolder and bolder, that maybe there was a reason for Banu Umayyah to come. Maybe he was trying to keep a balance. What was going on in his mind? What was, his, you know, what was the logic behind all of this? There must have been some reason, or else an impartial individual will understand that you can't, if, if you're worried for Muawiyah in Sham, then you don't bring someone from his own clan as Khalifatul Muslimin as well, because things can really go downhill after that. The third point here and the third observation is that, and this is what some historians have pointed out, it's kind of nice actually, is that when you bring six people together in a council like this, and you exclude other grand Sahaba, what happens is that those individuals who are in this council now will feel that, oh, we're all up to par with each other. And this is something that I pointed out towards the beginning of the talk. That, and Ali ibn Abi Talib also pointed this out in Nahj al-Balagha. He's like, wait a minute, you put me next to the rest? Yes, today, brothers and sisters, 1400 years after the Holy Prophet, um, you look at the big names, these are all names that shine. Yes, one is Saif al-Islam, one is uh, 
there are different titles that the different uh, Sahaba have. Each of them is a shining star, yes. But, uh, of course, that's according to the Sunni school. They're all shining stars. And the Holy Prophet even referred to them as that. Ashabi uh, can nujum. Yeah, my, my companions are like the stars. Whichever one you follow, you will be guided. And all of that kind of stuff, yeah. Now we look at it, they're all stars as if, yeah. Uh, according to the Sunni school of thought. But what, the, what matters a lot here is, and to understand is, back then Ali ibn Abi Talib didn't see it like this. Yes, he says, look, you put me in a council with the rest while I'm much higher than all of them. And it's not a matter of arrogance either. He's, he's trying to point out the fact that it was clear who was supposed to be Khalifa. And so now, when this happens, you put them all in a council and each has one vote, that means you're all equal, at least in this sense. It, this is why slowly some of them felt like, you know what, I can also be Khalifa. We were on a six-person council. Each one of us, if we had gotten the votes, we could have been Khalifa. That means we're all equal in that sense. And this is where our historians point out that this also gave them that confidence, which might have later pushed them to go against Ali ibn Abi Talib when Imam Ali became Khalifa alayhi salam. Yes, in the battle of Jamal. Yes, these are people that come, Talha Zubair, they feel like they can also be Khalifa. They're up to par. Where did this feeling start from? This notion of, I can also be Khalifa? Our historians have pointed out that it started from there, when they were all put at the same level in that six-person council. Yes, brothers and sisters, this was a huge victory for Banu Umayyah. I'll end with this. That, uh, this there's a report, and I found... Uh, our history books have pointed out five or six sources for this. It was interesting. Um, where Abu Sufyan, he, after uh, Uthman becomes Khalifa, and Uthman is Banu Umayyah, Abu Sufyan comes, and Abu Sufyan is very old now. He's very old, and maybe he's in his 80s, maybe in his 90s even. Probably in his 80s, late 80s or something. He says, and they say he was blind then. And he's sitting down with uh, you know, a number of the Banu Umayyah. And he asks, is there anyone else, uh, anyone else in this gathering right now? Because he can't see, right? Other than us, you know, Banu Umayyah, they say no. He says, listen, this Khilafah has now reached Banu Umayyah. Yeah? Um, he says, Ya ma'ashara Banu Umayyah, inna al-khilafata sarat fi taym wa'adi. Now that this Khilafah has come to you while it was with Bani Taym and Bani Adi before, You need to pass this ball to each other now. And don't let Khilafah go out of Banu Umayyah. And he says some other things also that are problematic. But I will leave it at that right now. What matters to us right now is that Banu Umayyah rejoiced over this Khilafah of Uthman. With this, brothers and sisters, now Banu Umayyah, they have power. They have power, but Banu Sufyan still are not big when it comes to Khilafah. All we have is Muawiyah and Sham, who is getting really strong. But then, slowly, the assassin of, assassination of Uthman happens after 12 years. And we're going to talk about that, inshallah, in our next lecture. Maybe you can say this is the biggest most important turning point in all of Islamic history. And the reason for that, inshallah, we'll discuss tomorrow night. That is the event 
that because of it, maybe we can say one of the, the main event, including all the other ones, but this one really shines the most out of all of the events in, that, in being that turning point through which or by which stuff went downhill to the point that Ashura took place. Before I end, this is also a reason why they call that six-person council and that decision-making process that took place, they refer to it as As-Saqifah Al-Thaniyah. It was really the second Saqifa, just to illustrate how important it was and how big a deal it was. Inshallah, tomorrow night we'll continue with this topic. As-salamu ala Hussein wa ala Ali ibn al-Husayn wa ala awlad al-Husayni wa ala ashab al-Husayn wa salamu alaykum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thank you.